Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is World Report. Good morning. I'm John Northcott. Former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney is being remembered as a leader who had Canada's interests at heart. He'll be remembered for doing big things. And it's a kind of leadership that I think we miss now. That's Kim Campbell, Mulroney's successor as Prime Minister. Her tribute is part of the reaction of those who knew Mulroney politically and personally. Janice McGregor is tracking the story for us. Janice, there are many tributes for Mulroney, but he's also a man who elicited strong opinions. Tell us more about that. Absolutely, John. Brian Mulroney was loved. Brian Mulroney was loathed. It's complicated. But he was politically ecumenical in his retirement, and so in the immediate hours after his passing, Canada's second prime minister, named Trudeau, stuck to a higher road. He had the courage to do big things. Former Prime Minister Joe Clark, both a rival and a trusted minister for Mulroney, called him last night one of Canada's great change makers, someone who is determined to move the country forward. But his two attempts to use his gift as a negotiator and a deal maker to bring Quebec into the Constitution almost tore Canada apart. It also tore up Mulroney's friendship with former Quebec Premier Lucien Bouchard. I think that he convinced a lot of Quebecers that we could be a very specific nation, but within within Canada. Only to see that dashed. The two men have reconciled in, in recent months, Bouchard said last night. But part of Mulroney's legacy is how the separatist bloc Québécois that Bouchard founded continues as the voice of Quebec nationalists in Canada's parliament. Janice, what's his legacy for Canada's conservative movement? It's remarkable how Mulroney's gone from being persona non grata in his party to once again campaigning as its elder statesman for Aaron O'Toole in 2021. Last night, Pierre Polyev talked about how Mulroney's government unleashed free enterprise. He spoke of his populist appeal. No matter how high he rose in politics, he remembered those humble beginnings. Many Canadians won't forget, however, that a book written about Mulroney's time in office was titled On the Take. It was a Conservative government that called an inquiry into Mulroney's relationship with a German arms dealer, a probe that struggled to get to the bottom of why he took cash from Karl Heinz Schreiber or even how much he took. On social media last night, Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister that called that inquiry, stuck to calling Mulroney transformational and historic. Janice McGregor in Ottawa. Thanks, Janice. You're welcome. The Supreme Court has issued a landmark decision this morning ruling that Canadians have a reasonable expectation of privacy for their IP addresses. Those are the unique sets of numbers that help identify a specific user or a user's location while on the Internet. Kate McKenna is following this story. Kate, this ruling suggests the Internet is changing the way the courts interpret the charter. 
Yeah, the Supreme Court uh, calls IP addresses digital breadcrumbs. And even though they're numbers assigned to computers browsing the internet, they have the potential to disclose personal information about people's browsing history, reveal their identity, and track movements online. The Supreme Court determined that this constitutes a reasonable expectation of privacy. And as a result, they say that law enforcement would need a warrant in order to execute a search. This appears to be a major decision for privacy rights in Canada. It stems from an Alberta case where police were investigating gifts purchased with fraudulent credit card information. Police tracked the transactions to IP addresses and then approached a third party and got the name and address associated with the IP addresses, leading to an Alberta man named Andre Bikovitz uh, being charged. He argued that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy and police should not have been given that information. Two lower courts uh, disagreed with him, but now the Supreme Court is ordering a new trial for him. Kate McKenna in Ottawa. Thank you. You're welcome. The late Russian opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, has been laid to rest in Moscow. Crowds gathered outside of the church where the service was held to show their support. They're chanting, no to war, and we are the power. It's been two weeks since the Kremlin's fiercest critic suddenly died in a penal colony, and the road to his funeral has been anything but smooth. As Abby Kugadasin reports, tensions are high between mourners and police. Outside the Onion Dome Church, featuring tall gold crosses, where Alexei Navalny's funeral is being held, police cordons, possible video surveillance, and men in uniforms. Leonid Volkov is Navalny's former chief of staff. They even went so far to say we will treat these as an unsanctioned protest rally and everyone who shows up will be arrested and, and things like this. Morning, the opposition figure is seen by the Russian state as cracks in the absolute loyalty it demands. In Russia, the regime is making it very, very clear that they are very much ready to use any kind of force that is required. Jan Dolbaum co-authored a book called Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. A once hopeful title, he acknowledges the 47-year-old's death is a huge blow to some Russians. And even if they might be angry individually, the anger doesn't come out collectively. It's rather dominated by fear of repression. He says the hopelessness brought on by Navalny's death is what the regime wants. But Navalny himself was once asked what his message would be for this moment when he was no longer here to fight for a different country. Don't give up, he said. We don't realize how strong we are. Thousands have gathered for his funeral in Moscow to mourn Navalny's death and thereby showing the Russian opposition's heart still beats, however faint. Abby Kuobas in CBC News, London. There are calls for an independent investigation into the deaths of more than 100 Palestinians yesterday. This was during an aid delivery in Gaza. According to local officials, at least 117 people were killed and more than 760 injured. Journalist Sarah Coates joins me now with reaction from Tel Aviv. Hello, John. Outrage is just growing. Uh, France is calling for an independent investigation, describing this as an unprecedented disaster. It says it's working towards an immediate ceasefire. Saudi Arabia, it is urging the international community to take a firm stance by uh, obliging Israel to respect international humanitarian law. China says it is shocked. Australia is horrified while Colombia's president is calling the incident genocide. Now, aside, John, from the horrific number of people that were killed here and people that were injured, what it has really done is highlighted the dire situation on the ground, showing that 
when aid does arrive, that it causes absolute chaos. Sarah, as we know, negotiations underway for some kind of pause or ceasefire, as well as for release of the hostages. So what effect could all of this have on those discussions? It certainly appears, John, as though this has now been derailed. We heard from U.S. President Biden walking back his comments about a deal on Monday. He says uh, after a call with these two key mediators, that is Qatar and Egypt, that he knows that the aid convoy incident will complicate the negotiations. Uh, We've also heard from the Prime Minister here, Benjamin Netanyahu. He is accusing Hamas of holding up these talks, saying that... uh, Hamas knows its demands are delusional and not is not even trying to move close to an area of an agreement. He says, I can't make a promise at the moment that a deal will be done. And look, just right near me, actually, here in Tel Aviv at the moment, I've been hearing loudspeakers. There's a massive protest happening outside the U.S. embassy with these families of the hostages. They are calling on Biden to get a deal done now to bring these people home. Reporter Sarah Coates in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, John. In the Iranian capital. Cameras click away as the country's supreme leader casts his vote. Iran is holding its first election since the 2022 anti-government protest, but a low turnout is expected. Voter apathy has been high during the protest sparked by the death of Masa Amini. In the United Kingdom. George Galloway, Workers' Party of Britain candidate, 12,003. It's a return to politics for veteran left-wing political maverick George Galloway. He was voted in to become the new lawmaker for the English town of Rochdale in the by-election there. He's promising to be a thorn in the side of the opposition Labour Party led by Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are two cheeks of the same backside. And they both got well and truly spanked tonight here in Rochdale. Galloway has been staunchly and sometimes controversially pro-Palestinian throughout his career. He won over his riding's Muslim community by attacking both Labour and the governing Conservative Party for supporting Israel in its war against Hamas. Well, that is the latest national and international news from World Report. I'm John Northcott. This is CBC News. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.